With the sports world on pause, we've teamed Greg Linelli and Eric Erlinson together for Power Lunch, an hour to talk lightning hockey, the NHL, and how you're coping with the coronavirus. This is Power Lunch, exclusively on Lightning Power Play via the iHeartRadio app. Center point headman, right to Kudrop. Score! Patrick Kudrop! Friday is the only day of the week at this point during this pandemic that I am aware of. Outside of Friday, they're all blending together. That's where we are. That's that's where we are. That's that's why we have to remind you every weekday which which day it actually is. It's just unbelievable the groundhog day feeling we have every single day of this pandemic being locked in. I tell you what, if you can't get outside, I don't know how you're coping with this. I mean, I, I look forward to the long walks my family will take, whether it's in the morning or the evening. If I don't do that, I feel like I'm losing my mind. And, and that's a short trip for you, is it not? What's that? If you were to lose your mind. It's not oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that's that's, that's a very that's a very poor joke. You can tell it's end of, at the. Well, that's end a of the shot week. at me on a Friday, man. You want to get real serious, don't you? Just, just on a Friday. That's true. I usually don't <laughs> laugh at your jokes, though, so I didn't laugh <laughs> that's there right. either. I, I'm used to it around the household too. If that's a if that's any indication. <laughs> no, he is very funny, and uh, no. we're gonna keep it lighthearted for you on a Friday. Not that we go deep and dark Monday through Thursdays, but you know we get into the the league topics and you know what's going on with certain players. We try and keep you informed with the coronavirus and and maybe you know, where the curve is when it comes to uh, different cities and, and breaking news. So we certainly have that. And we're going to be t- talking to um, Darren Drager. We're going to be replaying that interview that we did on Monday uh, coming up in uh, our next uh, segment after this one. So that'll be a lot of fun. If you didn't have a chance to listen to Dreg's talk to us for over 20 minutes on Monday, you'll hear... His take on what the league is doing, when play may resume, and uh, when's the last time he got his haircut? Because that was a question he asked, and he was very intrigued by that. But he coming up in this segment, we're going to hear an interview that Dave Mishkin did with Brian Boyle, I think one of the more popular Lightning players to ever put on a uniform, and he didn't play for the team that long. Nope. Two two plus seasons, but uh, he certainly yeah. endeared himself to the Lightning fan base big time, and certainly the media as well. I mean, I love talking to Brian Boyle, even if it wasn't for anything I was doing for a story. He was just a great guy to talk to, and you know, when you when you understand um, his family, um, you know, growing up with, jeez, uh, I think he's one of twelve, if memory yeah, serves a, me a, correct. Incredible. It, it is. Uh, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I, I have four. I can't imagine having three times as many. Uh, around I mean, the could house. You, honestly, can you imagine? I mean, like I, my wife and I, we have two little ones right now, and at the end of the day, we're both like, "Man, where did the day go?" And I'm exhausted. Could you imagine having eight more in your case, or no. ten more in my case? I mean, that's amazing. No. And in fact, have you ever seen the movie Cheaper by the Dozen with Steve Martin? No, 
No, that'll that'll give you some perspective because it, 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 yeah. that's what it is. It's it's a, it's a story about you know growing up with, with twelve children and, and you know the the Steve Martin plays a football coach who moves uh, to a bigger job and the family has to move yeah. and um, Bonnie Bonnie Hunt plays the wife and she has a book that she just wrote about raising twelve children. She goes on this book tour. Incredible, and, as you can imagine, chaos ensues with a dad in charge of. Uh, of 12 kids, actually 11. What could go wrong? Adult. Nothing. Nothing can go wrong, especially yeah. when Steve Martin's involved. Um, that's true. But that's the idea <laughs> there, uh, of course, to Brian Boyle. And then, you know, you learn about the, the, his dad and what his dad went through. And basically he had yeah. cancer and he was told he wasn't going to survive it. And, you know, they mm. ended up surviving and is still with us to this day. And the great story behind that. So a lot of things to love about Brian Boyle while he was here as a player, as a person. And uh, there's no doubt the fans really lack on to Brian Boyle because of his uh, magnetic personality and also for what he did on the ice and the elements that he brought there. So uh, that'll be a fun interview because he's very, um, he's a very engaging uh, personality. And I think even in radio, I, I think that'll come out big time, especially talking with Dave. Well, without further ado, why don't we get right to it? Here was a Dave Mishkin interviewing Brian Boyle a couple days back. They did a Zoom chat and uh, we felt it was so good. We are going to play its uh, entire interview right here on Power Play, on Lightning Power Play. Well, I am so happy to be joined today by former Lightning forward Brian Boyle as we look back specifically at the 2016 Lightning Islander series, and he was a big part of that. But that year in general and beyond, we're going to cover a whole bunch of topics. But before we get to hockey, Boiler, how are you and how is your family doing? Well, we're all, we're all doing very well. We're great, um, especially all things considered. It's been uh, it's been interesting, but we're we're doing really well. We're here in, in Fort Lauderdale. We had to uh, go back up north for a little bit uh, for my son, but everything was everything was great. We came back when we were able to, and we're now we're uh, re quarantining. <laughs> it's it's been a challenge, but it's I'm sure everybody can relate to it. Well, let's get into this playoff year. And before we look at the series in 2016, Lightning Islanders, I think it's important to look back at the regular season that year. And if you go back to 14-15, that was pretty smooth sailing for the Lightning during the regular season. You guys did not lose three in a row at any point that year until the final three games of the Stanley Cup final. So you go into 15-16, and it's a much different start. Like the first half – is filled with potholes. You guys come into January. You're you're in jeopardy of missing the playoffs. You have a couple of hot streaks in the second half of the year to help you get into the playoffs. But what do you remember about the challenges of that season coming off the final run the year before? Well, it's so for for me and and, and Anton Strawman, we we both had. Uh, we had a run like that the year prior to the one we had in Tampa with, with New York and the change of scenery really helped kind of going down to Tampa. You have a new team, you have new, new teammates that you need to kind of earn their trust and, and new coaching staff. So you need to kind of earn their trust too. And it's, it's so much to be motivated by. And, you know, it's a short summer, but the statement and that part of the game, I think that's so it's, it's so difficult to manufacture. So when you have a group that came so close like we did in the year before in Tampa uh, in, in, in 14, 15, and the success that we had and how we kind of came together and 
you know, even the first round of that, that playoff run the year before where we, you know, our backs were really up against the wall. It was crazy. Um, we came together and realized that we could, we could accomplish a lot and we knew how close we were, but kind of the drop off in intensity, even, even in preseason games and, you know, when the season starts, you kind of just try to feel your way through it instead of going after teams. I mean, the year before Tampa lost, they got, they got swept by, I think Montreal before we got there. And, you know, there's a hunger there after that long of a layoff. It it really feels like, you know, a first round loss is almost like, you know, you made the playoffs and that's a huge accomplishment, but it's tough. So we, we had to find a way to manufacture that. And we kind of had a, uh, I think we were in Calgary or Edmonton. I think it was Calgary. We had a, a players only meeting where we kind of watched. I think it was the whole game and, you know, Coop left the room and it was on us. Cause at that point he was just, he, you know, I thought he made a great decision saying, Hey, this is your team and you guys need to figure this out. So we had a really honest, uh, you know, at, at times difficult conversation with one another. Like it's this far into the season and we don't have our identity there's something really wrong. And if we don't find it, you know, they have no choice but to blow this thing up because if we don't make the playoffs or we don't have any kind of run here with how good we are, you got to make changes. And we didn't want that. We were a very close group and, and we expected more out of ourselves. And, and, and I think from that point on, yeah, the season is a struggle, but the games get much, much harder and we played much, much better. We got, we got, I think really good, really fast. Yeah, that Western Canadian trip, uh, you guys had a rally in Edmonton, and that was the start of a seven-game winning streak. And then you had a nine-game winning streak later in that year. But even still, you didn't clinch a playoff spot until the final week of the regular season. You go into the playoffs, and you have to go in without Strawman, who broke his leg in late March, and without Stammer, who gets the blood clot right before the end of the regular season. And what you guys were able to accomplish without both of those players for the bulk of the playoff year is remarkable. How do you think you were able to come together as a team to win two rounds and come within a game of the Stanley Cup final without those two critical pieces throughout that playoff year? I think that, I mean, that goes, that speaks to our depth. Obviously we had, uh, you know, a number of guys that, had uh, either either they were coming up and like uh, Cooch and, and Johnny, I mean, the year before they had great playoff runs, but still they weren't, I don't think they were quite, you know, household names yet. And then everybody knows how good Victor is. I think our goaltending is really good. So we had a good balance. Like those other guys, I mean, Stammer's our leader and the kind of way that whole thing went down too. I think it was, we all kind of took it upon ourselves to make sure we went as far as we could so we could get our captain back because he's, you know, he's working out in the gym and his arm gets really swollen. And I remember it very clearly and, and just how upset he was. He had been through the the leg at that point and he worked hard to come back from that, just kind of a freak thing. And this was even more of a freak thing. Um, you know, so the guys would go in and visit him after his surgery and, you know, there was complications there, obviously. I don't want to get too much in depth with, you know, Stammer's overall health during that process. But he was determined, and we were determined as well, to try and, you know, kind of pick up the slack, I guess you could say. Strahl's is such a steady presence, and 
Uh, I, you know, I've gotten to play with him on you know three different teams now, but that was a kind of a freak thing too. He got twisted up in that that leg, and he, he's, you know, he's one of the toughest guys in terms of playing through pain that I've ever played with. And I don't know how many people know that, but when he was down and then he came, he came back to play. He was obviously in a lot of pain, but he was, he was going to do it no matter what because those those opportunities you never know how many you're going to get. So we we tried to take as much as we could from that, put it on ourselves and different guys contributed as, as they do. If you can get through a few rounds in the playoffs, you always need different guys contributing. And it was exciting because it, it meant maybe a little bit more ice time for some guys. You have to get excited about that. And it showed our depth a little bit, which was fun. And for you personally, you had five goals that playoff year, including the one that we're going to talk about, obviously in this Islander series. Now I'm rewatching some of the goals in that series and in some of the other series. And there you are in the power play in front of the net. And I was trying to remember, did you have that role in the regular season or was that due to the injuries that Coop put you there in the playoffs? It, it happened to be more, along, more or less towards the end of the year, each year for whatever reason. Um, and that might be because of maybe just simplifying and shot volume, but I always tried to be ready for that. It, it, it happened. It wasn't very often during the regular season. And I would joke that um, I was ready for the secret weapon to come out. No teams had scouted it. I'd be in front of it. <laughs> All I really did was stand there, but uh, it was exciting for me because it was, it was an important time of year and to have an opportunity on the power play is, is so much fun. It, it adds an element where you're kind of involved in a different way in the game. Uh, scoring goals is the most fun, but it was mostly towards the end of the year or, or in the playoffs at times. But we, I mean, we had so many good offensive guys. We could switch it up a little bit if it wasn't working. Different guys got to play on the power play throughout the year and in the playoffs. And I mean, we all trusted every one of them to get the job done because of the ability that we had offensively. So you enter the playoffs, you're playing Detroit in the first round, a rematch of that tough series the year before. The series only goes five games. The games are close. But to me, in speaking with Lightning fans, the lasting takeaway for a lot of fans from that series didn't have anything to do with a game that the Lightning won. It was you and Abdelkader in game three in Detroit. And just a little backstory here. At the end of game two, a game the Lightning were about to win and go up 2-0 in the series, Abdelkader gets involved in an altercation with Mike Blunden of the Lightning. Abdelkader gets thrown out of the game. There's some bad blood from the previous series the year before. So in game three, the one game Detroit wins, you're ready to fight Abdelkader at the end of the game, and he refuses. So you make your chicken gesture. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, when that happened, did you have any idea that it would become this part of lightning lore <laughs> that's lasted years later? Uh, no, <laughs> short answer. Uh, it was just, yeah, I, I uh, it, it was frustrating for us because obviously we, we had lost that game three. Yeah. Um, going into the game, it's, it's in our memory, obviously, of how game two ended. Now we're in their building and we, we had a teammate that we saw bloodied and, and kind of put in a vulnerable position. Um, so you know, you want retribution in our game. It's it's common, but you also, with the prospects of going up 3-0 and hopefully having a short series, you got to 
understand that there's a lot of different things at, at play at once. So it's tough because nobody wants to get thrown out or suspended. And that was kind of my mindset while we were kind of dancing around the ice for a while where I was asking him to go. Um, I believe he had a bandage on his hand or something where he wouldn't go. That was, uh, that's what I understood from his perspective, I guess, through the media. But I thought, I just thought that, I mean, if you do that to a guy, it's, it, you have to answer the bell. And I, I really couldn't do anything else there without taking or putting myself in a position to maybe get suspended or start something else. So that's the only thing I could think of <laughs> to try to embarrass him a little bit because of, you know, really rightly just because of what he did to my teammate. Now he's, we've had battles with him. I'll say that over, over the years, he, he beat me in college. So there was a lot more, uh, <laughs> there a little anger maybe some jealousy for what he did to me when we were in college but um you know I think he was just trying to do what he had to do they had won the game already so he probably felt I don't want to speak for him but it was pretty frustrating for me that he wouldn't and that uh I felt like I had to do that for London and I wasn't able to get a fight with him but uh, I'm glad it kind of lived on because you know I love my time there and I like to have uh Hopefully it's a positive memory for some people because we did come back and end up winning the next two games. You do win the next two games. So you're on to the second round facing the Islanders who, and I'd forgotten this as I was researching the series, they actually had more regular season points than you guys, but the way the playoffs were structured, they ended up being the wild card. They beat Florida in the first round. They come into Tampa and they, they win game one. You guys, come back and win game two. So it's 1-1 going to Brooklyn for game three. And it's a wild game. It's back and forth. Kudrov scores the sixth attacker goal to tie the game in the final minute. It's 5-5. It goes into overtime. And on your goal, there's a lot to unpack. I rewatched it earlier today. And I'm like, man, there's so much happening here. So let's start at the end. <laughs> the goal. Hedman yeah. shoots the puck wide. It hits the backboards and comes ricocheting right in front. And you're there. But just because you're there doesn't mean that you're going to score. You have to stop that thing with your skate, settle it down, get it on your stick, and put it in the net. Because Grice is coming over. Like, he knows what's happening, but you have an instant before he's there. How difficult was that play to make, understanding the puck's coming at you hard, you got to stop it with your skate and then settle it down and put it in. Yeah, that was a, uh, you know, you have some moments in your career where things, they say, I mean, you hear from athletes a little bit, things slow down a little bit. Well, this, things slowed down a little bit for me and then they sped up very quickly. <laughs> so the first thing was when, when, when Victor shot the puck, I was trying to pass to Callahan. He was kind of covered. I thought we had a, he had a little bit more time. And, you know, Victor, like he can, is up in the play. Um, he gets the puck and gets it off quick. So it's, it's chaos, but I kind of see it come off his stick and I realize it's going to go wide. So I stayed where I was and I just waited for the puck. I looked towards the boards. I waited for the puck to come. Now I saw it come. I tried to stop it with my skate, like you said. And at that point, you know, I can't score if I don't stop the puck first. And that's what I'm thinking. And if I did that, I said, all right, just put it in the net. And then I kind of said, Oh shoot, here he comes. Now the puck was rolling and fortunate for me it was rolling. I was trying to go up, up on the short side, up high, because, you know, he was all the way on the other side of the net, Grice was. And it rolled on me a little bit, and it, I think it was under his 
arm and over his either over his leg or over his uh, stick. It kind of didn't go exactly where I wanted it to go, and then it went in. And my reaction was like, oh, my God, it went in. I can't <laughs> believe it. An overtime goal in the playoffs, it's like what you dream of. Um, you know, it really was a cool thing. And then, um, you know, the, the moment when Callie jumped on me, I realized that this was, a, you know, this was a special moment. You know, we were in a really tight, hard-fought series. They were a physical team. Their fourth line was really physical. Um, I remember Condra got hurt that – I think it was game one. They came out flying, and it's just a relief. I mean, you just it's, – it's such a cool feeling. I'll never forget it. I want to talk to you about the end, but I want to rewind a little bit because the play starts, you check Hickey just outside their blue line. And he's out of the play. Like he falls down. He doesn't get up. And you get the puck. It's, it's a kind of three-on-two at that point. And you mentioned Callie is in the middle. And I, until you said it, I was wondering, were you trying to – did you know it was a three-on-two? And were you trying to get it to Callie, which you said you were? And did you know Hedman yeah. was coming late as the fourth guy? I didn't really realize Victor was in the play. I, uh, because – so – I was a four, first four checker in the neutral zone, and I don't know if I was – I remember I had a little aggression in me. I might not have been playing quite as much that game for whatever reason, and I thought, you know, these overtime games are when the depth players really have to make a difference and try to do something to kind of get some momentum on our side. We're in their building. And I was a little more aggressive as the first four checker in the neutral zone. The, pack, the puck went D to D, and – I remember Thomas Hickey makes the pass like kind of towards the middle and I realized he didn't quite see me or expect me to hit him. Now I hit him and he fell and he tried to sell it. And I was looking at him a little bit like, come on, don't try to sell it. And then I realized he turned it over. Um, so I kind of think I had to get back on side. That was kind of my thinking. I had to either straddle the blue line or make sure I stayed on side because I think they just had put in that offside challenge rule or whatever it was but anyway so I stayed on side and then I realized okay we got some time here because Hickey was still down I couldn't believe it I thought he was going to get up or uh, come after me quickly because you know it wasn't really that egregious of a hit then I realized I saw Callie and I saw another guy drive and I just tried to get it over to the middle because I was kind of flat-footed on my backhand and then I was going to try to join the play however I could uh, they had a back checker kind of get their stick on Callie wasn't a great pass either on my backhand, but it, you know, fortunately went right to Victor who pounded it right away. So in the lightning locker room, there still stands or hangs a picture of that goal that you score. And you know, from having been in that room, significant big plays adorn that wall and your goal is up there. Have you ever scored an overtime goal. I know it was your first NHL overtime goal. Was that your first overtime goal in your career going back to college? Uh, I mean, I had an overtime goal in the American League, at okay. least one of those. And then in, co in college, I had, I had one that was pretty memorable. But um, that one takes the cake for sure. Just because, I mean – even I mean, looking back, even more so, just because of that series. And, I mean, they're just great memories, really. And, and you know, that's pretty cool to hear that I'm on that wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's still yeah. on that wall. That's nice. 
Nice. So you guys end up winning game four in overtime. Again, Kucherov scores third to tie it. Garrison scores on a slap shot. And I just felt your best game in the series was game five. You just completely sucked yeah. the life out of them. And you scored in that game as well, late first to make it 2 nothing. Did you have a sense going into the room after the first period with your goal that that was a gut punch that was going to be tough for them to come back? It, it looked like they did not have as much push, particularly after you guys jumped on them early. Yeah, you know, I think they, they had uh, – so we had those two overtime wins, and those we, we know, you know, most guys know, I mean, if it goes the other way, it's so tough, really, because you put so much into just one game in the playoffs, and then if you don't win, you still need to you still need to win four games. So even games you lose, you, you're, you're drained physically, mentally, but when you have – or you could start sniffing that finish line, like get through another series – there's another boost of energy, like kind of like I talked about going the other way with early in that same year where we couldn't find that extra, that energy, that, uh, that excitement, you know, we, we got it there and, and that's where you have it and you have to take advantage of it. Now we, we jumped out to a lead and I think kind of our mentality was the next period, really. It's like, yeah. we have to keep going this way. We have to get the next one. We have to find a way to make sure they get no momentum, you know, things like staying out of the box, nothing after the whistle, stay out of it, stay out of it, take a punch, whatever it means. If you can advance, then there's only eight teams left, really. So it's, I mean, there's, uh, or then there's only four teams left, rather. I mean, it's, it's so hard to win. It's hard to get to the playoffs and then even win a series. So we knew what was at stake. We were really excited about it. We took that energy and kept going. So then you see Pittsburgh in the semifinals, and that was a series that had a lot of everything. Bishop gets hurt in game one. They win overtime game two. You guys win overtime game five. You have a chance to close them out in game six. There's that coach's challenge on the offside where you guys thought you had scored and that goal gets taken away. They end up winning game seven by a goal. And for you, you've come so close in your NHL career. You've been to the the Stanley Cup final twice. You've been to the conference final twice and lost. And not that you ever want to get good at <laughs> going through that, but like how do you absorb yeah. and kind of reflect and think back on these close calls? Do you ever get over them? Do you like play the what if game or do you just kind of learn to live with it and move on to the, the next game and the next year? Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, that was, I think, that was 67 playoff games in three years. And twice you got to watch the other team celebrate the cup. And then that third time, uh, obviously, Pitt went on to win. Um, that's how close. And great, great guys. I mean, if, you know, you can cry in your Cheerios the day after or a couple of days after, but you know, I've found that even even after the fact, you know, teams like that that have had that kind of success, they don't come around very often. Now, people might not talk about them as much because they weren't cup champions, but we, I mean, we have fond memories of that. It's it's some of the best times. Those playoff rounds, you know, really all the playoff experiences I have, it's the best, most fun, most exciting hockey uh time really even even days off in between games it's the best 
it's the best thing that, you know, I've been able to do in terms of playing hockey, really. I mean, and it's some of my fondest memories outside of like my family, my kids, my wife. It, it really is. It's something that I'll always cherish. I'll always wish. I mean, imagine if we accomplished one where we got, we got through when we got to the, the top of the mountain, how much, how much greater that would feel. You know, you ask guys that you played with what it's like. It's, they have that commercial where they're interviewing the guys and they, they can't, they don't, they can't put it into words. I mean, I talked to guys like Brett Connolly and what's it like, he still doesn't really know how to explain it. So, you know, that's kind of what, that's a driving force. I'm still able to play. So that's kind of the, the uh, mentality I have. I'm thankful for that. I'm still able to play. Um, but geez, I mean, that's kind of what drives us. That's the motivation really. But the what if game, yeah, I know. It's, yeah, you go down that rabbit hole sometimes. <laughs> so the next year is a tough year for the Lightning. Uh, they would end up missing the playoffs by a point. You get moved at the deadline to Toronto. Yeah. That off season, you sign with the Devils. You're getting ready for your first year with the Devils. You go in for all the testing prior to the season, and they call you with a test that is that is suspicious, I guess. Where and it turns out that you have cancer. Do you have any symptoms at all heading into the preseason testing that might have given you cause for alarm or were you just completely kind of struck by lightning, no pun intended, uh, when you got that call? Yeah, no, it was, uh, there were symptoms that things started to make a lot more sense once I got the information. Um, so going back to that trade, it, it it kind of floored me really. And I, I tried to prepare myself for it as best I could, but getting moved was like, it was really hard. It was really, really, really hard for me. And I think the first time you get traded, it's, it's especially mid season, um, you know, saying bye to my wife and my, you know, my little boy was still sleeping. I had to leave early in the morning. All that stuff was, it was an immense amount of stress that I hadn't gone through yet in my life ever to that point. And it was tough for me to kind of wrap my head around it and then, you know, kind of getting comfortable in, in Toronto, but then having to go through free agency again, there was a lot of stresses that were going on in my life. So I just assumed that, you know, we just welcomed our daughter. Um, there was just too much going on. So I was, I was pretty fatigued and excuse me, as the, uh, as the summer kind of went on, I was feeling pretty good. I was in pretty good shape. And for whatever reason, like week to week, I just started declining. My energy was going down. I was, I was, uh, I remember playing golf one time on the weekend before the season started, like right about when I was supposed to leave or maybe a couple of weeks before. And I was on like the seventh hole and I just kind of wanted to go home and take a nap, which has never happened to me before in, in any kind of competitive environment, yeah. especially not golf, which I love to do, but. I would take naps for three hours during the day. I'd go to bed at 10. I'd wake up at eight. I'd feel okay in the morning and go do my workout. I would feel a little bit worse each day in the workout. And by the time I got to, to, to training camp before the tests and stuff where I was meeting the guys, I skated for about 20 minutes and I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't recover on the bench. I couldn't catch my breath. I couldn't catch a pass. And I was really nervous that something was really wrong or that I just couldn't play anymore. And didn't know what it was. We did the blood work. And then Kevin Morley, the trainer in, in uh, New Jersey, was like, we have to go to the hospital and get more blood work. Turned out I had 
know, 85,000 or 87,000 white blood cells going through my blood. And they were very alarmed. And I was really scared because now I realized what was making me feel so terrible. Stuff I just tried to brush off, whether I was dehydrated or something or had some new allergy that I didn't know about. It was, it was going to be a little bit worse than what I originally thought. So it's still a shock. It's still, like you said, like a, a lightning strike to your whole soul when they tell you that. 32 years old. I got a you know, four or five month old daughter, a two year old son. Um, but the more information we got, the more positive the uh, prognosis looked. And they found a way to treat it. They were able to, to come back and play and are still playing. Yeah. And of course, that year, the All Star game, the All Star weekend, uh, would be taking place in Tampa. And Taylor Hall got hurt. If I'm remembering this right, Taylor Hall was the mm -hmm. devil's rep. Yep. He got hurt. And you got an opportunity to go, uh, to go to the All-Star game, to do it in Tampa, and to be recognized the way you were by Lightning fans. Like, what does that mean to What did it mean to you then, and what does it mean to you now? That was crazy. Uh, that was a crazy time. Because uh, Halsey did get hurt. He had an unbelievable year. Obviously, he won the Hart Trophy that year. Yeah. Um, you know, he was – I felt so bad because he should have been recognized and what he was doing. And he did. He got recognized at the end of the year with, with the Hart Trophy. But, you know, I talked to him about it. I talked to uh, my wife about it. The, the, the kind of wrinkle in the whole thing, which it was tough. I almost, uh, I almost couldn't go because my son had a pretty big operation that, that week. And I was – I, uh, I wasn't going to go. I said, this was, this was such a cool thing. And, I had this weird feeling that I'd be down there for some reason. And, and they asked me to go. I couldn't believe it. And I called my dad, obviously. And he said, you have to go. I said, I can't go. I can't go. And my wife made me go. She said, you're going. And, um, so Declan was in uh, the ICU for a little bit. The doctor actually who was working on him was like, he'll be totally fine and you should do this. And so I got to go down and, it was tough leaving for sure. I went, I got there a day late cause I was actually in Boston with him during the break, but my dad came down with me and it's kind of perfect because you know he loved, he loved it down there in, in Tampa too. He came down a lot. He got close with some of the medical guys there and they did two dad's trips there. He was, you know, he loved it down there. I did too. And chance for us to go back. My little brother came over. He was at Eckerd college at the time. And so those two were there. We took zero pictures because there wasn't anybody smart enough to take phone <laughs> and take a picture. Um, but it was so cool. And then, and then that first announcement, I was floored. Like I could not believe it because I, I know how much Tampa meant to me and my family and how wonderful those years were down there. But I, I didn't, uh, I didn't expect it to be reciprocated quite as much. And I mean, it, it still means the world to me. Um, just the, the, the outpouring of love, and you know, I noticed it when I was sick, and when I came out with uh, the news that I was sick, all the support that I got, so much of it from Tampa, you know, and, and all the places that I played, and and even places I hadn't played. But uh, there was a special kind of bond that I had with that that city, and I loved it. Um, it was nice to feel love back, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, it was, it was totally an experience I'll never, ever forget. Well, I know that Lightning fans always appreciated 
not only how you played, but the attitude that you brought onto the ice with every shift, not to mention everything that you did in the community. And I mean, that goes a long way anywhere, certainly, but uh, they appreciated Brian Boyle, the player, appreciate Brian Boyle, the player, and Brian Boyle, the man, too. And I think that's why you had such a lasting impact here. All right, that was Brian Boyle with Dave Mishkin. And E, something you and I have discussed when we've done our intermission reports for these uh, Lightning Playoff Rewind games that are heard right here on Lightning Power Play 95.3 is, especially during 2016, but even in 2015, Brian Boyle was a, a key part of the Lightning's playoff runs and scored some pretty big goals. And, you know, at times played with Callahan and Puckett, was good on the PK, scored on the power play, and... Of course, everybody remembers his dust-up with uh, Justin Abdelkader, but a guy who could do it all. But when we talk about role players and going far in the playoffs, I think you sometimes look at players like Brian Boyle as to a reason why a team can be so successful. Absolutely. You, you need players like that. You need players who can, you know, you, you have your stars, and then you have players like Brian Boyle who are big parts of your team, but maybe don't get the same sort of notoriety, uh, but they contribute in, in so many ways. I mean, even just think about Brian Boyle when he was with the Devils and he faced the Lightning uh, in 2018 in round one. He he really tried to play that role and really went after Mikhail Sergachev, if you remember right. He, he really got under the skin of Mikhail Sergachev and tried to be that type of a player. That's right, Again, I remember that. finding yeah. ways to be effective uh, you know, even though you're not necessarily a big goal scorer, but finding a way to help your team. And Brian Boyle did that on so many areas. He was such a good penalty killer. He could win faceoffs. Uh, he was at net front presence on the power play uh, every now and then. Uh, what he could do in standing up. Remember, the Lightning worked still aren't a very big team, and he brought a lot of that element, especially to the forward group. Uh, so just a, a lot to like about what Brian Boyle meant to this team with two deep playoff runs. Yeah, it's interesting. And... Uh... One of the better interviews, as you've you've said before. So, uh, Brian Boyle, uh, that was fun listening to that interview with Dave Michigan. All right, when we return, our interview with Darren Drager from Monday. He's from TSN. He's Eric Erlinson. I'm Greg Linelli. It is the Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. The hockey world might be on pause, but Eric Erlinson and Greg Linelli aren't. This is Power Lunch, exclusively on Lightning Power Play on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome back to Power Lunch here on Lighting Power Play. I'm Eric Erlinson. He is Greg Linelli, and Greg, we had the opportunity to talk to Darren Dreger a little bit earlier in the week. Uh, great guest, as you would expect, one of the league's top insiders. Uh, works for TSN up in Canada, but uh, uh, covers a league like uh, so few people can. Uh, his ability to, to, to find news and, and be engaging. And uh, this was a really good interview uh, that we had with Darren Dreger. And it's great. You know, we talked about perspectives. You know, to get that national perspective, I think, is, is a huge opportunity for people to listen to. It is. And a guy who's dialed in, it's always fun to bring that locally here to Tampa Bay because, you know, as we know, I think a lot of Lightning fans love hockey, obviously, but their team has a legitimate chance to win a Stanley Cup. And whether that means they're playing in a packed house at Amelie or nobody in the house, to have an opportunity to play for a Stanley Cup this year, even in a, a weird situation with the coronavirus interrupting the season, I think people want to know when that may happen. And, you know, getting a guy like Darren Dreger on here and there to um, shed some light on it is um is always valuable and it's always fun so we appreciate that 
Yep, very insightful, very informative, and a little entertaining as well uh, here at the end of the interview. So this is Darren Dreger from earlier this week here on Power Launch on Lanny Power Play. Uh, Darren, let's get right into it. We're starting to see some other leagues come back competing or starting to open things up a bit. Should we expect to hear something from the NHL on that front in this uh, next week or so? Uh, yeah, I, I would lean towards or so. Um, there's no guarantee that you know we'll hear anything definitive from the National Hockey League this week. I, I know that they're working on uh, the protocol that ultimately would govern what the initiation of Phase 2 would look like. And for you know any who aren't entirely up to speed on the phasing, Phase 2 means that the National Hockey League would, would encourage... Um, the players who are in varying parts of North America or are overseas to come back into North America, come back into their NHL cities, um, and then hopefully be able to start working, albeit in small, small groups, four or five players in their club facilities. All of that, though, is governed by the National Hockey League. So first, they're going to nail down the protocol. Um, and I expect that, that that list of protocol will likely be finalized if not this week, uh, then perhaps early next week. And really, is, is it's a review of the factors that will again be utilized in initiating Phase 2. But we don't know when they plan to initiate Phase 2. In a perfect world, it'd be later this month, later in May. But that's going to be determined by the health authorities. Darren, it seems like the NHL is being deliberately slow, maybe slower than some of the other uh, leagues around North America in particular. The NBA opened up some of their facilities on Friday. The NFL has kind of put out guidelines to reopen. Uh, Major League Baseball continues to work with stuff. And we know some of them, some of the aspects that might be out there for the NHL. But is is the deliberately slow, is that on purpose in a lot of ways to kind of just because of how much the NHL relies on gate receipts, and we know that fans probably won't be back uh, when this season resumes, but to maybe push the deadline a further, a little bit further back in the, in the case that maybe fans could come in sooner, even if that means for next season? Well, I mean, that would be the silver lining in all of this, right? Is, you know, if, if you're going to have to deal with the delay, which, you know, everybody is already de- uh, dealing with, and you're you're okay with one of the scenarios being a play-in formula where, you know, 24 teams instead of 31 teams are involved in that process and they play a three-game set, which then determines the the 16 playoff participants. You know, if if you're willing to go down that road, then what's the rush? And and you're willing to consider starting the 2020-21 season as late as December, then what's the rush? You might as well embrace the philosophy of being better safe than sorry. And guys, I, I, I know the National Hockey League is, is also encouraged by you know some of the, the reopening strategies around North America, um, certainly from a sports standpoint, but from a business perspective as well. But they're equally interested in finding out whether or not there's going to be some form of setback from the reopening of the business sector to some degree in, in certain parts of North America. You know, will there be a second wave, those sorts of things? So it's not like the National Hockey League is purposely pushing back and saying, well, no, hold on a second here. Um, they're just doing their due diligence and they're wisely watching to see what's happening in other parts of the United States and, and here in Canada. And I, I'll give you a Canadian perspective here, guys, for a moment. Um, the province of Ontario just announced on uh, Monday morning that they're extending 
their uh, state of emergency protocol into June. Um, so that gets a little bit more complex and complicated, you know, even though, you know, the federal government in Canada late last week said that, you know, it was all right for pro athletes to start coming back to their cities. We need to be mindful of, you know, what the provinces are doing independently because the province govern what each province is doing and specific to the National Hockey League, it is the NHL that will be determine when these players come back and when they're allowed to start training. And that's only when safe to do so. Darren Drager from TSN joins us here on Lightning Power Play. Darren, once the league does ramp back up, do they shut it down again if the virus spreads, as you just talked about? At that point, you wonder if just shutting things down the whole season makes the most sense. Yeah, you know, and I, I, we don't have a definitive answer for that. I, you know, there, there seems to be differing opinion. Um, you know, some of the people involved in the decision-making process between the NHL and the Players Association uh, believe that. Let's, let's just say that they, they come back, phase two is fine. They go into phase three, which would be a training camp, and then phase four is game on. And somebody in that process tests positive, be it a staff member, personnel, a player. What happens? And again, this is governed state by state and provincially, individually. And, and some provinces here in Canada just simply say, well, I mean, everyone in close proximity to that individual who tested positive would obviously have to quarantine for 14 days. Yet there are some around the NHL who don't necessarily believe that is the case. Again, you know, I sound like a broken record. We all do. It's the health authorities that are going to determine that. But I, I, I think that, again, if, if the NHL is willing to follow through with that 24-team format, the idea behind it is to get through the playoffs as quickly as possible. Is it best of fives instead of best of sevens? And, and that would then build in um, some cushion time. It would give the players another break. But just as important, perhaps even more important than that, if there is a second wave, if there are additional outbreaks, then the National Hockey League believes that they would have some time built right into that schedule. Again, thinking that they could start 2020-21 in December, that that might be able to help, help work through a second wave. So all of this stuff, all of this strategizing has already been done. What hasn't been completed is a, an exact calendar date, right? When the restart is going to become official. And that's simply because, again, everybody is, is waiting for additional information from the health authorities, be it World Health, CDC, or Health Canada. Darren, the, the NHL has been pretty adamant they wanted to find ways that they could to finish a regular season schedule, but we're starting to hear more and more that that is not going to be the case. They might go into this 24-team or some sort of a playoff format uh, right away. Is that the trend where things are going, and does that still leave potentially the four quote-unquote pod cities as the most likely scenarios? It, it does, um, but you phrase it properly. Uh, most likely. Nothing is etched in stone at this point. Um, there's another Board of Governors conference call, which isn't unusual. These are regularly scheduled uh, for next Monday, a week from today. Um, and then there could be more information on that call or right after that call specific to, you know, where the NHL is at in identifying the, the hub cities. Is it four? Is it five? Is it less than four? I mean, these, these are all the scenarios that are being uh, discussed and are being analyzed at, at, at this standpoint. Um, you know, the, the 24 team format, as we have openly talked and reported and speculated on, 
it makes the most sense just from a timing standpoint. I got to believe, though, you know, when you're starting with, with 24 instead of 31, there's got to be some internal pushback from some of those seven teams that want to be part of, you know, what could be a, a one-off. Let's hope it's a one-off, historically speaking. Um, you know, you, you want to embrace the integrity of the Stanley Cup championship. And I think the NHL and the players believe that you do that by maintaining a 16-team playoff format. But you also have to be mindful, you know, of the seven teams. Some of those teams would have sold off player assets at the trade deadline. Just, again, just clear acknowledgement that they weren't a playoff team. So they were, you know, kicking into a, a retool, a renovation, or a full-on on rebuild. And then you've got a safety element, too. You know, does it make sense to drag those seven teams back into the mix to play a, a three-game play-in? You know, to go through you know all the expense of, of traveling back uh, to to put them at risk to some degree. There's always it feels like there's always going to be risk. Those are mo- my words, and, and that's essentially it. But to go through all of that process um, only to to have the 24 that would be identified in a point percentage basis anyway so nothing is etched in stone as we continue to remind but that seems to be the most likely at this point darren Drager from tsn joins us here on lightning power play and obviously darren we're, we're asking for your opinion I, I know there's um we're speculating a bit on on what the league will do but i'm curious if the league does decide to play regular season games before the playoffs begin what does that tell you about the nhl's thinking is it more revenue based is it to get players conditioning down or is it a way to sort out the playoffs I I guess you could say it's all three but is there one that means a little bit more to the league than the others if the regular season comes back uh no I mean if the regular season comes back I mean that's that's just a, a an extra look if you will I don't believe there are going to be fans in the buildings anytime soon and and that certainly would mean through the regular season very likely through the the postseason and who knows maybe even to start next season whenever next season starts but you know if 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 the calendar allows you know upon the blessing of of the health authorities uh, to play more than the three games or the five games that they look at as a play-in formula, then that speaks to a healthier world. And that would be a great thing. Uh, and I'm sure the players would love that as well because, you know, there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure and stress, both mentally and physically, on these players, right? I mean, when's the last time that the players have gone two, three months or more without stepping on the ice? The majority of them. We know that there's some who have uh, maintained uh, their skating training uh, in Sweden. But, you know, aside from maybe a few uh, who have been working through nagging injuries, the vast majority of NHL players have, have not been skating. So any tag on games that you can provide is going to be a benefit to the quality of play and to perhaps the health of the player. You know, how many muscle pulls, groin pulls, nagging type of injuries are we going to see? But again, all of this is going to be determined and dictated by where we're at in the fight against COVID-19. I, I just think realistically that the NHL is looking at his calendar now and looking logically and, and again, going through all the time that's required here. First, to get the players back. There's likely going to have to be a, a self-isolation 14-day stretch and on top of that, you're incorporating, you know, a, a three-week training camp. Now, maybe elements of that could be built in uh, and overlap to some degree. But 
I think this is just the reality when we talk about that 2014 format of getting things handled in a timely fashion. Power Lunch continues here. Greg Linelli with Darren Dreger and Eric Erlinson. I'm curious too, Darren, we've heard some players outspoken uh, about being away from their family for an extended period of time. How does that work out for the players, do you think? And is that just something League and Players Union will have to work through? No, they're definitely going to have to work through it. But, um, you know, I, I know that the NHL is sensitive to it, uh, but I just don't see any agreement between the NHL and the Players Association unless there is a built-in allowance uh, whereby the players are able to visit with their families. Um, yeah, you're right. There have been a few players who have have spoken out. Um, Phil Deneau, one of the Montreal Canadiens, Adam Lowry from Winnipeg Jets. Uh, more, more recently, Devin Dubnik uh, spoke out as well. And and that's a big part of, of why the return to play committee was formed, to allow those five players on that committee to make sure that they had a strong representative voice for all the players, for the full membership of, of the National Hockey League. So there's going to have to be some sort of an allowance um, and again, maybe that allowance is a little bit easier to manage when you're dealing with, you know, 24 teams instead of, of 31. But you're still going to have to manage it to some degree. Now, traditionally speaking, it's not unusual for players to be away from their families for weeks. You know, that's that's part of, of what the playoff picture can look like, even though, you know, for home games, obviously you're at home. It gets more complicated with a four or five hub cities like we talked about earlier. Um, so, you know, a couple of scenarios that have been discussed. One would be allowing the player to leave, you know, the hub city and leave his team for a few days. Not sure how that would work if you're, you're in some sort of playing environment. You know, then that player would have to be tested and he'd have to be cleared before he could re-enter. Uh, or you create a, a safe zone, if you will, in that hub city for the family members to come in, uh, they would obviously have to be tested. Then they could visit with their uh, with their player, and you know that might make the most sense. But then the logistics take over too, don't they? And I can tell you that on the call last week, the return to play committee call, and I'm sure with the NHL, the general manager's call, just dealing with the issue of testing is a beast. It's a it's a monster. And I've just touched on a few scenarios here. And there has to be a mammoth financial task and, and, and crush that goes along with the number of tests that are going to have to be done. You know, just going through the initiation, initiation phase of phase two, going into phase three, which is training camp, and then phase four, which is playing. How many tests are the NHL teams um, and all involved going to have to sort through, especially when you're adhering to some sort of visitation right, including the family. So it's, uh, it's complicated, but it's definitely something that the NHL and the Players Association are continuing to work on. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that the Serie A over in Italy is talking about testing their players every day, including personnel yeah. and physicians and everybody else involved with the team. So that's uh, it's probably the biggest obstacle that they're going to have to overcome to, to kind of put this all in motion. Uh, but Darren, I am curious, the league is hesitant to talk about you know, how long they can extend this before they have to just start looking towards next season. Have you heard or picked up anything? I mean, what would be the latest possible situation that they could encounter to get to to find a conclusion to this season and keep next year intact? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I mean, I, I keep being told by, by NHL governors and some of the decision makers that 
the National Hockey League recognizes that they may be playing this season into September and maybe even October. And that's why recently you, you heard Commissioner Bettman um, confirm that they don't love the idea, but they're the, okay with the idea of starting next season in December. And there are some who wonder if they would you know, push that into late December. You know, there's only so many things you can remove um, from within the season. You can take away the five-day breaks. You can take away the all-star break. You can limit the Christmas break. You can add on the back-to-backs and the three and fours and, and, and all of that. But the commitment is to playing 82 regular season games next year. So if you're starting at some point in December, that means you're okay with lopping off a part of the offseason for next year as well. Because clearly, you know, the 82 games, you're, you're going to be playing into July. But to answer your question, um, I, I think that the NHL believes that it is very important to play out this season in some capacity, to make sure hockey remains relevant, to make sure that the NHL is able to deal with things like the draft lottery and the NHL draft and free agency um, and, and all of those things. Uh, so it, 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 it's going to be tough, uh, but they've got enough scenarios in-house, the NHL head office, that I believe that they think that one of those is going to fit. Unless, unless, and we can't dismiss this, you know, markets around North America are starting to reopen, you know, from a business perspective. Uh, that's happening in Canada, not in all provinces, but in some provinces. If there happens to be a large spike or that second wave comes earlier than, than many are predicting, well, who knows? I mean, that, that absolutely could push the National Hockey League to a point where they look at the, the weeks remaining and go, it's, it's just not viable. It just doesn't make sense to play out this season, 1920. The integrity of the Stanley Cup most definitely is going to be in, in question. But I, I think we're going to have to see a second wave of COVID-19 for the NHL to realistically embrace the notion of having a cancel the year. Darren Dreger joins us here on the Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. Darren, last question for me. What's the feeling in Canada amongst the people just getting back to work and opening up the market? I think here in the States, more and more people are wanting to get the economy going again because the effects of that can be devastating long-term. Not everyone obviously has that thinking, but I'm curious what people in Canada think about opening things up right now and, and getting back to work, even with this virus out there? Well, look, it's a slippery slope, right? Um, you know, I, I, I think all of us have done as good a job as we can in staying at home and, you know, flattening the curve. Um, it hasn't been as successful in, in some provinces, um, you know, and it has been very successful in others. And that, for me, speaks more to, to density and population, right? Toronto's a uh, a metropolis, you know, large city like Montreal has had big numbers. And, and then you look at some of the prairie provinces here in Canada and they haven't been hit nearly as hard. What I know is that millions of jobs are being lost in, in Canada. That's just the harsh reality. And yeah, I mean, all of us want to get the economy rolling again. We want to do our part. Uh, we want to get back to whatever normal is moving forward. But normal doesn't matter if, you know, all we're doing is, is creating an environment for a more significant second wave. I mean, every life matters and every one of us has to do our part 
to to help manage the process of of limiting um, the, the 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 reality of of lost life through a second wave of of COVID nineteen. So we're eager. We're all anxious. You know, we're all starting week nine of what is self isolation and and doing our best. Um, and I'm one that you know feels for the economy absolutely, but. I also don't don't want to be looking back at the past nine plus weeks and going, man, we wasted it by being harsh and and jumping the gun here a little bit. So that's probably not popular opinion across North America, but that's that's part of my concern with coming back too soon. Darren, last question. Um, One of the big things about this whole isolation is uh, haircuts, and I know that you (laughs) had a home haircut take place uh, a few weeks back uh how did that all turn out and uh how are how's the uh, how's the do doing right now <laughs> well my do is i don't um and <laughs> I, I i i don't know why for whatever reason i keep holding on to this goatee i like i personally can't grow a full beard um so i i can grow a fairly healthy goatee but the truth is Managing the goatee and maintaining it is probably more difficult than actually shaving on a daily basis. <laughs> so it's different, and it gives me something to, to think about that takes my mind off some other stuff. Uh, so I guess I'm okay with it. I've, I've <laughs> since the original haircut, which my uh, 18-year-old son Mason provided well over a month ago, I got trimmed up last week. And so I'm probably a little bit better than some, but... I wouldn't pay a nickel for the haircuts that my son has given me with all due respect. I mean, he just brought the clippers out and uh, cleaned it up as best he could. I'm not being critical. That's just the reality of the situation, but I've got curly hair and I throw enough hair gel in there to, uh, to, to probably last me a week with, uh, with one quick set. So, I mean, it's the least of our worries, uh, but I probably won't be getting a haircut anytime soon. (laughs) Well, just 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 like the insiders, we'll leave it to the professionals. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. Dare, great stuff. As always, we uh, enjoy watching you and, and reading your work, and um, hopefully we're talking about some real hockey pretty soon. Appreciate you coming Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Thanks, Darren. Yeah, you bet, guys. Be well. And that was Darren Dreger again. We really appreciated him coming on the show earlier in the week, and as we expected, Greg, very insightful, very informative when you have one of the top insiders in the game, in the league, covering the game, uh, giving us some really good insight into where the league might be thinking. Yeah, and I think hopefully we'll find some more answers to questions about when they're going to reopen things or let athletes back training next week. It sounded like Darren felt like that could happen, and I think we're all going to be watching this weekend and early next week to see if anything starts to break a bit. Yep, yep, hopefully some news is on the horizon. Uh, what we definitely have on the horizon this weekend uh, on Saturday, that's tomorrow on Fox Sports Sun, you have a replay of Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final between Tampa Bay and Calgary. Again, that's on Fox Sports Sun. There will be a Zoom call with some members of that team, including Brad Richards, Martin St. Louis, and Dave Anderchuk, among others, on that call. So make sure you tune into Fox Sports Sun. That's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Also here on Lighty Power Play, along with 95.3, we continue our replays from the 2016 Stanley Cup playoffs. We'll have games one and four of the Eastern Conference Final against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, Again, that's on Saturday and Sunday here on Lighty Power Play. 
and 95.3 WDAE. And we would be remiss if we don't check out this week by acknowledging that tomorrow is the one-year uh, anniversary of the death of Steve Dumig. Uh, Steve Dumig was such a strong voice in this community for so many years on, on sports media. He was a big part of the Lightning family. Uh, he had the opening face-off show that you could hear here on Lightning Power Play. I would have the opportunity to uh, sit in with Steve numerous times in studio, especially the past couple of years uh, before he left us. And uh, he was such a great, strong voice in this community, and we miss him every day. Uh, we miss his voice every day. Uh, he was called the Big Dog for a reason. And uh, Big Dog, we're thinking about you this weekend. Uh, so hope uh, everybody um, kind of remembers Steve and what he meant to the sports media in this community. All right, that's going to wrap up another week for us here on Lightning Power Play. Uh, this is Power Lunch. Again, we're with you weekdays 12 till 1. Uh, Greg Linelli, thanks as always. Steve Versnick, Thank thanks you, for checking it in i appreciate the uh, the interview listening to uh, dave and brian boyle there as well and of course darren dagger and everybody else that's been with us on the show this week we'll be back at it again next week starting on monday on noon and you can hear it all right here on lightning power play